Welcome to Interscription. This week's episode is a selection of news from Apple's WWDC Developer Conference, some reviews of TV shows and movies we've watched, and why the world and succession doesn't deserve Matthew McFadden. We also tease a brief look of our games coverage for next week's show. Thanks for staying on this road with us. Doing a podcast a little early, and this will be coming out, I think, normal time on Friday. But let's talk a little bit. I know I wanted to chat about WWDC, which for us just happened yesterday. Uh, should we jump in there and then bounce to our next things? Yeah, I love that. Um, yeah, so WWDC is the uh, Apple Developer Conference. Um, and so I guess all, all our favorite tech companies here, they um, typically have... Uh, you know, some shows that are more consumer focused about here's the devices and services we're shipping that are, you know, and then at, at least also once a year, it seems like they will also have, I think Microsoft has a few of them if, as I'm thinking about it, but um, just because that's a, you know, pretty nerdy company, but the uh, they also each have kind of a developer focused show that interestingly enough over over years now uh, those developer shows have become another marketing opportunity for these companies um and so even though they're talking about apis and new programming languages they're also demoing uh hardware at that same time and uh that's been uh that's been sort of borne out um i think uh, I don't want to say that any one company's done it more than the others, but I think they're all starting to use these developer-focused uh, uh, shows to to try out their new wares and show the new devices. There's a measure of that that is appropriate because the APIs may be using uh, or taking advantage of new hardware, right? So if you have, you know, an API for uh biometric sensors and you don't have a lot of devices that have biometric sensors then and then you say oh and by the way we're shipping this new laptop that has a you know a fingerprint sensor on it right so um i do see why one might do that um uh as a as a company but but it uh it has always been a little confusing to me because i think the developer ones are really supposed to be for the people who are, you know, developing for your platform truly. And it really shouldn't be a place necessarily where there's like a whole bunch of demonstrations and things that they're going to sell soon um, or ship to consumers. Like, I, I don't know that, that that has always felt a little weird to me. It's felt like the marketing people took over and have, you know, shipped things that, uh, uh, you know, shown features and sizzle reels of things that, you know, don't belong at a developer show. Um, and they all do it. This isn't an Apple specific thing that, that that's something they're all, they all are just taking, they already have a whole bunch of eyes on them anyway and all the tech press is showing up anyway so it's a perfect time to show off more things that they're trying to launch um so i don't blame them for it as much as i just wish that it was more segmented you know and that this stuff was a little bit more behind the curtains be that as it may where we are wwdc is apple's version of that there were some new api and uh enhancements and things uh, i uh don't have the list in front of me um so uh as we pass back and forth maybe we'll kind of pull up somebody's article and, and look through that i'm sure off the cuff we can come up with at least a few of the things that we reviewed and were curious about but um, definitely but. yeah I, I have a couple big picture things i want to jump on and uh yeah i totally agree there's 
a whole chunk of things. Uh, you know, Apple announced a couple of new products uh, that are coming out. Uh, WWDC, I think, is a week long. And so some of this gets folded into that keynote of it. And some bits uh, for are very developer-centric. They announced extensions to CarPlay to actually integrate CarPlay into upcoming Car's actual dashboard instrument clusters, which is interesting. It's a little terrifying depending on how it's implemented, but definitely something for developers to think about. You know, if you're a car manufacturer and you're going to be building a car that's coming out in 2025, being able to have a navigation widget right in the dash cluster or a weather widget or something like that may make a whole lot of sense, may help for you know eyes on the road, especially if you have a heads-up display. Uh, but other things, you know, I just want to talk about two things that really don't have anything to do with developers, and then we'll kind of bump through. Uh, the one is uh, the hobby horse of the siloing of Apple messages, which... Uh, you and I have batted about a lot. With Apple Messages, there's a protocol that is solely from Apple to Apple devices that replaces SMS on your phone. I believe there are standards that are starting to be adopted to tackle this on Android and other phones. Uh, yeah, I think it's RCS, uh, Rich Communication Standard, right. is, the, is the new one. And so Apple's announcement on this is sort of goofy to me in that sense that uh, there's always been this meme that, you know, Apple messages, conversations are in blue, and then an Android user pops in and turns the whole thing green and just ruins everybody's fun. And, you know, when you like a message in messages, the Android user gets a text that says, Rich said, thumbs up to this message. Yeah. And, you know, the whole thing is just broken and it doesn't work. We should be moving to standards. Uh, let me put that aside, though, because... They announced that messages can now be edited or deleted within 15 minutes of sending. This is not great for human communication, relationships, common understanding. I understand that we have all drunk texted at one point in life, but, you know, put some math on that, uh, put a hard lock screen slow down, give a buddy your phone. Once you've sent a message, it is sent. And if you've sent that message to an Android user, there's no amount of messages, editing nonsense that is going to unring that bell. It, it's, it's sent, it's done. But it also feels like one of the most disingenuous things you can do because messages, SMS, text threads, is a, it's communication. You've said something, somebody has responded, and within that time, you are able to change what you said in the mm -hmm. thread or delete your message altogether. So if you've professed your undying love to an armadillo and that armadillo writes you back, then armadillo is going to feel pretty bad <laughs> about what you wrote and what you said. Mm. Uh, I don't know. Am I going too far in this? Am I overthinking the ability to delete or edit text messages i um i don't know i i think when it comes to when it comes to the ability to uh edit messages i i i think i separate those two i would say first of all when it comes to editing i think there should be uh, a little button where you tap it and it 
and it you know does a little uh, sparkle <laughs> animation and then the original text comes back and then you tap it again and then it sparkles and it goes back to the edited text like I think you should be able to so like if you sent something to me and you said uh, I love MoMA armadillo and then you edit it to say I love mama armadillo and I tap that I want to be able to see both of those versions of the text the original and then you're edited um, that I would be okay with and then just in the in the the breath of you know sometimes you're just typing really fast and yep. you just have some typos or you have something you forgot to put in or it just looks sloppy or whatever. Um, I appreciate the ability to clean it up um, while still having the matter of record of the typo. Um, delete is is not is is a slip a more slippery uh, place to be. I don't think we should have that. I guess uh, particularly in text. Um, that's even before the fact that this is only for Apple to Apple users. Uh, um, I think the tech part of that, um, which has been, you know, something you and I have talked about quite a bit and is highly frustrating, is that uh, I don't really mind that Apple would be the one that won that war. Like if Apple wants to just make Apple messages and they can just make a better messaging product than everybody else, then they should do that just like they made iTunes, right? But iTunes was on Windows also yep. and it was other places. So to me, I don't, I'm not too concerned about who owns the stack, you know, as much as I can take the stack somewhere else, you know what I mean? Like I can have an Apple messages app on my windows desktop, on my Android phone, on my Linux VM, on, on wherever I have uh, computing presence, I want to be able to also capture my Apple messages. And this is something that doubles down on the siloed nature of Apple messages, because it is truly something that is just simply un not going to be functional outside of the Apple ecosystem. There's no way to do that. And there's certainly no way that all of the carriers are going to add in special handlers for other texting right like as it is they are they have an ingesting uh mechanism at each of the major carriers to you know capture your messages and and do the apple message uh massaging of them so that they have all of the magic that texting typically does not um but uh as almost like a gateway if you will but this is a, a this will potentially actually be clearing messages off of servers, although I don't necessarily believe that. I'm sure that the record is still out there, but uh, but I think that since it's going to fundamentally change what is being sent, um, you would have to have a further reach than this is going to have. So really what this means is they've, instead of looked at something that they could ship in other places and just make a superior product, um, that it's just pulling Apple people together and it's pushing everybody out the the meme that you had about the you know the blue text turning green i can't relate because i've never had a product <laughs> but i but i do uh, uh i do imagine i've probably been kicked out of group chats that i don't know about uh but i, I uh but i would say like i think uh this just doubles down on that sort of exclusionist behavior and i just don't see it as being something that uh uh, furthers kind of the the ability for you know a, a product to do very well. I think it 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 uh it's it's actually pretty uh, uh, there's a lot of hubris there. Like that it's it, it's such an important feature that it's actually going to pull people away from other types of messaging. I mean the thing is is these types of features do exist other places, whether it's Teams or Messenger or WhatsApp or whatever. You can edit and delete things all right, that have been just sent. about all of them. so. 
I guess, again, like this is kind of updating the ability to, you know, for messaging to be in another place. I will say that RCS is probably becoming more of a reality than it ever has before. It seems like all the carriers are signed up for RCS and most of the devices are signed up for RCS except for Apple ones. So this might be a shot across the bow to make that because RCS is really going to be what Apple Ma Apple Messages is today, except for maybe not the little animations like the, uh, what is it, the laser light show and the, the fireworks and all the other stuff that's very Apple Messages centric. But, but beyond that, all of the uh, typing indicators and the, you know, ability to send larger texts and with, with more um, fidelity of pictures and so on and so forth, like all of that stuff is is going to come along with RCS. So I think this might be more of just a, well, look here, this is a differentiator because this is something that RCS can't do. Um, so that might actually be why they're doing it. I don't know. Um, but in any case, I think uh, it, it is starting to call into question why we're using SMS at all, right? Like, I, 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 I that's probably Absolutely. a very, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> uh, technologically uh, savvy American viewpoint of, you know, why messaging is what it is in, in this day and age, because I'm sure there are parts of the, the world where SMS is the only option and, and still makes sense to some extent. Um, but I think that as the as the world shrinks, you know, I think we really just need to start thinking about whether or not texting all up is even really all that valuable and moving to a messaging platform. Um, and if that's the case, like all of a sudden, all this Apple messages stuff just goes out the window. Um, so I, I to, to my mind, I feel like Apple is missing an opportunity here long term, because I think if they if SMS and RCS and any other sort of uh, embedded texting goes away, and is no longer part of a uh, of a carrier's platform, then I think very quickly Apple Messages is just going to be another messenger or WhatsApp or Teams, except you can only get it there. Where whereas all of those other messaging platforms become come up, you know what I mean? Like I think all of a sudden it changes the, the landscape changes very quickly. It becomes not just the best texting; it becomes. Uh, a cool texting thing that you can only do with some people, right? Like, right. I mean, I think that's where the pivot happens. Uh, so I think their best move here, the features being what they are, edit is cool, let me see the revisions, delete is not cool, don't do that. But I think that they are missing an opportunity here to become a cross-platform contender with some some very heavy hitters. WhatApp is probably one of the biggest ones by a country mile uh, across the world, even though it's not maybe quite as big in America. Um, so I, I would... I would, if I were to recommend anything to them, I would say you need to get Apple messages in every last device and on every last eyeball possible, right? Like get it out there. I think that's the way to win. Yeah. You know, two, two capping thoughts on that. The one that I think is interesting is with RCS gaining steam and Apple devices being an interesting holdout, most Apple users are going to turn on messages, but it's still something to turn on. You have your default SMS that you don't have to use messages on an Apple device. You can just use texting if you wanted to. Uh, you know, it's hard to see the value proposition in that because it is right now one of their major silos selling points. So if you're already on an Apple device, why the heck not? You know, you can get your messages on your Mac, whatever. But part of that being a value is SMS universally sucks. And so if you're already on an Apple device, the value proposition is we're going to make this better for you anyway. And if you're dealing with non-Apple users, it'll be the standard experience. 
if they don't sign on to RCS, then anybody who chooses not to use messages is going to have a worse experience on an Apple product than the baseline Android or other device experience that's using RCS. And so they may be cowed into adding RCS support on iPhones. And so to get you to still turn that toggle to, yes, I also want to use messages, they have to amp it up, right? They have to keep moving forward on it. So I think that's an interesting upward pressure. Uh, You know, I agree with you. They claim to be a privacy-focused company. Uh, I think, uh, like anything for any corporation, they act in their own self-interest. And a side effect of that self-interest is it benefits them to be privacy-focused because they sell expensive devices. And they're not an advertising-based company like Google or Facebook. And so it fits their business model to be, quote-unquote, privacy-focused. I'm not crediting them, nor am I dinging them for that. That's just uh, where it's fallen. There is a real opportunity. You know, the one, because you're talking about WhatsApp and Facebook properties that are controlling messages, and uh, these are companies that very much want your data. Apple claims to not really want your data. Signal is an open source uh, messaging service uh, that I use uh, for a couple of friends groups that actually walks that walk. Uh, They are Mm. secure. They are decentralized. Nobody is catching your data. They're end-to-end encrypted for users. You have to regularly put in a passcode to keep uh, decrypting it so you can read messages. And it feels like there's room for Apple to make that play, to say, you know, we are this, but from a name that you know and, you know, ostensibly trust. And so Mm -hmm. I think, you know, I agree with you. I think being cross-platform messages, and you can even monetize it. it. You know, maybe the benefit of buying an Apple device is you get it for free. And if you're picking it up on an Android or Windows device, then you're paying a monthly subscription if you don't have an Apple ID. And then people can vote with their dollars or not, just, you know, like, you and I are going to buy every single PC game Sony ever produces because we want to encourage them to do that. Yeah. Uh, so I, I just wanted to give those kind of last two thoughts uh, really in wild agreement with your take. I, I think RCS is pressure. I would love to see carriers, now that they've got a better messaging solution in the pipeline, negotiate with Apple and say, listen, even if you're not bringing messages our protocol is going to parse your messages data so that RCS users can benefit from a baseline interoperability with messages users. And so you can like messages, maybe there'll be our emojis instead of your emojis, but we're not going to write out the text so-and-so liked this. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then, you know, we can all go on. But you and I, we use Teams primarily since we're cross-platform and it works fine. There's so many options that this should not be the sticking point or the reason for people to use these products. Um, so I wanted to jump on to the other big WWTC. I don't want to say gripe, but, you know, I use a lot of Apple products right now. We're recording this on my MacBook on my end. And just over to my right is my Surface, which I stand at at work at all day. You know, I'm very cross-platform. I use devices from both Apple and Windows on a daily basis, uh, side by side. So, you know, take this gripe for what it is. The one thing that Apple's computers, uh, their laptops in particular, which is uh, where I'm drilling down to, uh, 
has always had going for it is unlike shopping for a Windows computer, you do not have to compare Dell with Lenovo with HP, check out a whole bunch of different processors and RAM configurations. And so for consumers, Apple's a premium brand, but it's always been a consistent brand. You know, this is the MacBook Air, this is the MacBook Pro at these two sizes. Uh, you know, these are the three items that we have in our inventory, and these are the three configurations of each. It's been relatively clearly cut. It's stupidly expensive, and nobody's ever going to say that you can't get a Dell XPS that's going to outperform a MacBook for an absolute fraction of the price. So this is just a commentary within the limited world of Apple having made that comment. Since moving to their own silicon, their product lineup has gotten really muddled. And so at WWDC, they announced the first two MacBook laptops using their new M2 processor, which replaces the M1 from last year. And I want to put a pin and maybe have you remind me to come back to the commoditization of laptops as an annual upgrade because uh, it makes me a little ill. But Mm -hmm. what I wanted to jump into is the new MacBook Air is a direct successor to last year's M1 MacBook Air. And it's largely an incremental upgrade from that. And the other laptop that they announced as being, you know, one of the first two to use their new M2 processor is an entry-level MacBook Pro. So last year, they upgraded the MacBook Pro's line from a 13-inch monitor with bezel to a 14-inch model with a slimmer bezel, and that was the M1 MacBook Pro. They kept the Intel-based MacBook Pro at 13.3 inches. They dropped it at a price point, which is typical for, I think, a lot of companies, uh, Apple included, where they... Uh, keep whatever inventory they had. Maybe they'll do a bit of a refresh on it. Uh, The big change was after several years, the MacBook Pros lost the touch bar, which was a touch-sensitive strip instead of function keys at the top. They replaced that in the 14-inch model with actual function keys. And importantly, they brought back some ports. They brought back the MagSafe charging port, which has always been a wonderful thing. The only other laptop I've ever had that's had something similar was an older Dell XPS that had an octagonal magnetic charging cable in it. Um, It was a 13-inch. But I think all laptops should have some sort of magnetic charging connection. I have dogs and children and value expensive electronics. In fact, I think everything should have a magnetic cable and not get thrown across the room when some dog sees a fox outside the window and goes just tearing through things. Uh, So that had been gone for many years. They had, I guess, starting in 2018, 2019, all of the MacBooks went down to just Thunderbolt ports, no USB-A, no HDMI, no MagSafe, no card reader. And the MacBook Air, the MacBook Pros, just had you know Thunderbolt USB-C ports. So anything you wanted to do, you needed a dongle. Last year, they upgrade to the M1 MacBooks. They bring back HDMI. They bring back the MagSafe card reader. They don't bring back USB-A, but still small benefits. Mm-hmm. This year, the M2-based 
MacBook Pro, which is an M2, it's, they're saying, you know, 1.8 times faster than the M1. So it's a more powerful laptop than the 14-inch MacBook Pro, holds more RAM, loses all of those ports again, and gets the touch bar back. Hmm. And so now you have an M2 MacBook Air that beats the pants off of last year's upgraded 14-inch MacBook Pro, and you have an entry-level MacBook Pro, which is more powerful internally, but brings back all of the features that they changed and reconfigured just last year. And as I said at the top of this inventory, you need to sell it out. I get that. It feels like a bridge too far for me. It feels like a weird step backward, and I don't think they're bringing the touch bar back, I think, or the bezel back. You know, they've got a beautiful 14-inch screen with a minimal bezel. So I don't know who that MacBook Pro is for, and it feels like they probably should have just canned that and launched the sequel to the MacBook Air as the first M2 device and left it at that. And when they were ready to iterate on the MacBook Pro, launched the M2 14-inch version. Yeah, I, I'm way on board with you. I'm I, um, not a Mac user, so I'll, I'll just comment at a more, you know, more of a high, higher level in terms of usability. When I look at those two devices and I look at a MacBook Air and a MacBook Pro, I would immediately think without getting mired in all the details that you're much more intimately familiar with that the Air is more of a consumer device and the Pro is more of a professional's device. And for the Air, I think you need something that, you know, is not bristling with ports. It probably has, you know, cute features that are not as useful as they think they are, like a touch bar, uh, you know, and, and it's just all about the form factor. It's, you know, great battery life. It's very light, you know what I mean? Not that it shouldn't be super powerful with their, their apparently very good silicon with the M1 and M2, um, but in terms of the chassis, you know, I think it, it's really just a simpler, more consumer-focused device. And the Pro should be function keys, and it should be bristling with ports of every kind, of every one that they can stack in. Too many ports, right? It should be all the ports, ports all over the place. That's it. Dongles with ports, with more ports, with more dongles. Like just pour them out, and like everything, everything you can. You know, um, higher res screen, more RAM. You know what I mean? Like this should be a professional's device, right? Um, it should not have any cutesy things like a touch bar. It should definitely be. You know what I mean? It should be for the professional user, um, and then charge accordingly right yeah. um so that that to me if i were looking at the products year over year that's what you should be doing with both of them anyway full stop um so making it extra confusing by flip-flopping those designs year over year and going from one to the other just to go back um uh and you know i hear you about the inventory also that's their problem that's not my exactly problem. right um so uh i feel like my my frustration is more just like if I were to step into, you know, buying a Mac today, my expectation before I walked into a genius bar somewhere to have them explain this madness to me would be that, <laughs> oh, well, if I'm doing work, I want the pro one. And if I'm doing less work, I want the air one. And that's it. Right. Like it feels like that should be the way to do it. Um, so that's that's a, to me maybe where I stand on this thing in yeah. a more broad perspective. Um, so it is extra weird to me that they did do that step back this time. Yeah, it, it sort of it hampers that value that Apple purports to build in having 
owning the whole stack from your phone up through your desktop and having a clear product line. And, you know, in common to that, the new MacBook Air actually is a legitimate upgrade more in line with last year's 14-inch Pro. It's thinner. It's got a bigger screen with no bezel. Interestingly, it will hold up to two terabyte SSD, 24 gigs of RAM, which is the same as the MacBook Pro that they just launched next to it. So it's got the same specs. It's fanless. The retread MacBook Pro has a fan design, which, you know, maybe Mm. you're going to get more juice out of it, but I think it's really because it's two years ago's model and they haven't redesigned the thermals for it yet. Uh, And that's frustrating because you're turning the MacBook Air into something that is actually more powerful than anything else out there, including all of the MacBook Pros that you sold last year. And yeah, as consumers it is, right now it is the best value, most powerful, small Mac laptop that you can buy until September, I guess, when they reiterate on the non-entry-level MacBook Pros. And it's just... It's too much. And then, yeah, I'm going to remember for myself, the move to their silicone has definitely made me feel like they're treating these $2,000 items the same as they treat their $1,000 phones with this expectation that you're just going to upgrade every year. And last year was the M1. Now it's the M2. Next year it'll be the M3, but you're going to get a new laptop every single year. And Man, this is maybe this is a bigger complaint about portable computing in general. But we both build desktops uh, recently. You, know, you helped me build a new gaming rig and a server, and uh, took some parts out. We even used zip ties to fix the cooling uh, on the server mm-hmm. because we were able to repurpose parts. And the digital waste in some of these absolutely gorgeous products is just crushing. And obviously, that's ultimately on the consumer. Uh, you know, if you have a laptop that's working great, then you can roll with it. I tend to be a little spendy, but if I look at my laptop purchase order, you know, I had, as, at least in the Mac world, a 2015 Mac, a 2018, and then I upgraded finally last year when they moved to the M1. So about every three or four years, depending. So there's no, nobody's telling me I have to upgrade every year. You know, you upgrade when the item is not doing what it needs anymore. Mm-hmm. But it definitely feels like Apple is pushing that pressure that they learned from the phone business, which they got, in fairness, from the phone companies that built this idea that you get a new phone every one or two years because that's how they kept you on contract. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I, I would love to see more upgradability in laptops in general. Uh, you know, Windows laptops are just as guilty. The XPSs are absolutely gorgeous. Uh, the Dell machines, they're thin, they're light, they're powerful, and everything down to the RAM is glued to that board. Sure. Uh, you know, there's just nothing that you can do about it. And it would be great to see a manufacturer, even if it's a dark horse candidate, make that commitment and say, you know, we're designing something from the ground up so that we can't promise you a decade, but we're going to promise you that we're going to have compatibility for five years. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think the uh, tough part about that and, you know, the, there are there is ways to get past this too. I don't think anybody's cracked that the, the particular flavor, but 
I, I think that the race to have something that's paper thin as a laptop, um, I think that's really where it's become our uh, biggest problem. And paper thin is a phone, paper thin is everything, right? Like everything is like, we need to make this device disappear, right? It has to be as, right. as thin as humanly possible. And that part I think is where it's becoming difficult because when you design that and you're talking about thermals, right? And we're talking about fan versus fanless in the air and the, and the pro uh, for the, in the MacBook world, I think I think when you want to be able to put an SSD in something or throw some additional RAM in something, um, you know, maybe we even get to at some point where we can have modular video cards and CPUs, you know, that's probably a little bit farther than, than we'll, we'll see in the laptop world because it wasn't really ever that way. Um, but I think it really, you then end up having to really make the decision that you can get this incredibly beautiful looking device over here and it is very thin and it is, the, you know, the, the awe of the boardroom when you walk in and you open it up and everybody sees how thin and light and beautiful it is. Um, or you go to something that's just a little bit more traditional and I think that that's where I, I lean as much as humanly possible. Um, I, I currently for work, I do use a Surface device, uh, but I I think that... Uh, you know, and the XPS is really just a response to uh, the Surface and to the, the MacBook and to, the, to this push that uh, these thermal constrained chips, you know, that are getting stuffed in these things are just not as powerful as what you can put in a beefier laptop anyway. But, but also really the upgradability just goes out the window because you have to disperse those chips everywhere. Like you're stuffing battery and chip in every last little corner in this very unrepairable way um, just so that you can have the form factor only um, and I think just more societally we have to kind of step back from that a little bit I'm, I, I think it's it is really just a form over function thing I, I, I there are definitely laptops out there that are super upgradable uh, have external GPUs and you know okay I mean that are very very powerful devices uh, but you have a little more heft to them right like they don't right. look nice in the way that a, an, a MacBook Air looks nice or a surface looks nice um, so you know, I think that's more the thing. You're, you're going to have to make that concession to have the slightly bulkier laptop, and then you do get everything you're talking about. Um, but, uh, but you know, it's it, it is it is uh, it is still something that I think um, on a longer timeline we'll probably get to even with the thinner laptops. For me right now, I mean, because I have a work laptop that's uh, supplied to me, I, it's not really as much of my problem, and it's not something I have to worry about. I do get to right. turn that over. Here and here and there. So I, I, I think uh, but as you know, for personal devices, you know what I mean? Like upgradability is it like I need to hold on to these things for a long time, you know, a lot. And I have kiddos and, you know, bills and responsibilities that make it so that it is quite difficult to be flipping these things on a regular basis. So um, so I would say, like, I think that's uh, that is something you have to kind of push to. And, and quite frankly, the only way to really get there is to have a device that's going to let you do that. It, it exists. I, I, I'll say, you know particular to the Mac ecosystem. I don't think they're going to be very interested in doing that, but I think in the Windows world, you can absolutely find the laptop you're talking about. Yeah, you know, it's funny. I also have a Surface Book on my desk that is my main work computer, and that's a great example of a technical solution that never really went further because the GPU is in the keyboard and you know the Surface Book is a tablet that separates and has a hinge, and you can reattach it. And the accelerated graphics for it—not that they're anything to write home about—are in that base with the keyboard, and the actual CPU is in the tablet part. And so yeah. you know there's some elegance there, 
Microsoft never finished that thought, allowing you to purchase just another Surface Book keyboard with a further upgraded GPU, or if you needed a second CPU, a way to chain them to get more processing power. But there's definitely elegance there. there there's possibilities to solve these problems uh, if there's the commercial interest in doing so. And I think that's it. You're right. You know, Mac, Apple makes its money by selling as many laptops as it can. And so there's really no reason to allow them to be upgraded or to promote that. And Apple customers, you know, myself included, will dutifully buy what we need to when we need to do it. And so there's not the incentive, but yeah, you know, the Surface Book is a very interesting technical solution to that. And I'm sure there are other it may be the other way where it's, you know, the screen and, you know, the CPU and the basics are in the base and you kind of have like a modular solution. Um, so you have a couple of things that you've watched on our docket. I am very interested in it. I have not seen some of these. So, you know, I'm, I very much want to, you have Ozark, Stranger Things and The Northman all, all of which I have one episode of Ripper Street left, and it, it was it was everything that I could do not to finish it last night. But uh, I awoke several hours later. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, R- Ripper Street in particular. I, I, I might, we might as well just say it on air here. That final episode. I, I do want to take a separate a uh, couple of minutes to just talk about that final episode and why I loved it the way I loved it. Um, so I'm, I'm, uh, I'm excited to, uh, to talk through that with you. Um, it was, uh, not what I expected. It was not what I expected, but I, I, I did think it was, uh, something, something special like the rest of the show. Um, definitely want to do a whole Ripper street retrospective with you. I will probably go back here shortly. I actually started up the first season again to kind of go back to it. Cause the first, I think season and a half to two seasons was, something I had watched much, much, much earlier, like right when it dropped. And then I didn't get to the last couple of seasons until much later, um, not realizing that they had even, you know, shipped. So, uh, so I, I, I may be doing kind of a rewatch here soon. And then I'd love to maybe do just a Ripper Street podcast with you one day. I, go, I can't you know, wait. Yeah. We keep kind yeah. of passively mentioning it as I'm working my way through it. Uh, next week, obviously we've got a jam packed pod with all of the gaming announcements, but for now, give me your pitch of these shows. Which should I watch next? In what order? What's meaningful? What content am I missing out on? Absolutely. Um, so the three things I listed here, and uh, um, I put up Ozark here, I put up Stranger Things, and uh, the movie The Northman. Um, so I'll try to burn through them here um, in terms of like the least interesting to the most interesting here um so ozark i'm gonna more broadly say as much as i enjoyed it at the beginning of it i'm gonna say it's a hard pass if you have been in it already you can just stop and you can get off the train it's not worth finishing it was not uh um i was uh i was disappointed i was disappointed um i like jason bateman a lot i like uh the 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 way that they constructed that world a lot um i found that 
into the final almost two seasons that every one of those characters was just an irredeemable pile of garbage and I did not want to hear anything they had to say or root for them or I, I there's no one there's not a single character that I cared about or that I was worried about in any way I was just waiting for the next thing to happen for all of them because they were uh, truly irredeemable truly uh, uh, just poor, poorly written characters in some ways, but also uh, they had no uh, relatable problems. They were all just uh, lousy humans. Um, and uh, I say all of that because there are other shows that also I, I do not like that uh, have a similar uh, sort of thing. Uh, um, you and I have talked about uh, Succession, and I feel like most of those characters are not redeemable, and it makes that one very hard to relate to as well. <laughs> and not just because they're flying around in PJs, but also because like I just they're just bad people. Um, but uh, uh, the thing that particularly frustrated frustrated me about Ozark is I I want to say it's the final episode. It might be the end of the one just before it. Um, but several of the characters have these moments of just turning their story around like just not just not being bad people as though somebody swooped in and said listen nobody's going to care about these people and how their story ends you're going to have to make them better because they're they're terrible and they did and they were just i mean with swells of music and with just heartfelt relations and relationships and and things that that show should have had for a couple of seasons prior to that and uh, did not have and it was it was glaring to me it was glaring to me how that that these characters were almost being told that they have to be redeemable right now because we're about to end the show and uh, I was mm. I was blown away I've never seen a show do that before um, because I, they were down such a rabbit hole that I didn't care about that once they tried to start softening some of them I I, I couldn't I could not be on board I, I was I was shocked um, so anyway if anybody is this deep into Ozark and they're on the final season uh, you know you it's probably not a big ask to finish it out um, there's some great hip-hop in, in the final season of Ozark they they uh, bring up Nas's Illmatic uh, both in name and also in the soundtrack and uh, terrific stuff so uh, I wouldn't uh, I wouldn't say uh, that the soundtrack is bad but I think the show is really bad in the, in the last uh, final stretch uh, moving up to Northman. Northman is a movie. Uh, it is uh, definitely directed by and I think co-written by Robert Eggers. Um, he, the previous two movies that I have seen from him, and I think his only two real claims to fame prior to The Northman are uh, The Witch, um, which was kind of a small sort of colonial movie about uh, some uh, colonists down in... Uh, greater Virginia area I think I, I might have the location wrong but uh, they uh, start being haunted by a witch out in the woods it's a you know very small story very very uh, uh, art house almost indie film um, with some really kind of cool interesting uh, twists to it as it as it finishes out uh, from the witch he they move he moved to the lighthouse uh, the lighthouse uh, I'm sorry back to um, the witch it was a uh, Anna, Anna Taylor joy um, was the actress who was most recognizable from that I believe um, and then moving from that to uh, the lighthouse, which was William Defoe and Robert Pattinson, um, almost exclusively. It was truly just a lighthouse and those two guys. It was a black and white four by three movie um, that he did uh, and uh, was 
very uh, also again very indie, very art house, very small uh, movie. Um, both of those uh, weird is is the is a nice descriptor for both of them. Um, so moving forward to the Northman, uh, Northman seems like such a weird pivot for him because it is like a much bigger uh action historical epic kind of movie um i would i'm not going to say it's of the size of a gladiator or patriot you know from years prior but uh but much bigger movie um for him uh, much bigger set pieces uh it um alexander skarsgård i believe um is the is the northman uh, uh of the title and uh it is a fairly rote uh kind of uh revenge flick uh things you can see right in the trailer you know the uh his character is a child when you know tragedy happens to his family and he kind of squirrels away and disappears for a while and comes back and he's uh extraordinarily ripped he's a really big guy I, alexander skarsgård has been in the gym ladies and gentlemen uh he's he is big guy and uh he uh has learned to fight and uh is you know um and finds himself on this sort of revenge uh journey to uh to avenge the things that happened to him when he was younger um i think it was well done i it is not the same weirdness by any means of the other two so um i will say that there's some uh not knowing any of the research behind it but i i, I know that there are things that feel particularly authentic to the kind of norwegian uh rituals from ago you know uh, uh and uh Lots of you know runic writing for for the interstitials between the various set pieces and stuff. I mean, it it seems very steeped in the in 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 uh, in some of the mythological, uh, but also uh, just historical uh, moments from uh, from Norwegian history. Uh, so uh, it was well done, uh, well executed, uh, but. Um, I don't know. I, I think it's just it's a it was a weird fit um, to me for him. I, this might have just been a passion project for him that he likes that time period and he likes the the mythologies that he was calling to. <clears throat> Excuse me, um, but I uh, I don't know. It doesn't have any of the small indie weirdness that his other two movies had. So I'm not sure why he chose those uh, or chose this as his his choice. And then finally pivoting off to Stranger Things. Um, uh, Stranger Things uh, this season broken up into two pieces uh, I think it was seven episodes I'm, I'm, I might be wrong on that right now but uh, you know a handful of episodes uh, there there is kind of a mid-season break um, I, there's been a few shows that have done this now um, where this year they're kind of releasing their uh, I believe it was Stranger Things Better Call Saul and Atlanta are all doing this exact same thing where they kind of have two seasons in a year, like two half seasons -ish yep. in a year. Um, and so I, I don't know if that's because of COVID or anything else. I, I, don't, I don't know why, but it seems like there are uh, several shows that I watch are doing that. Um, so uh, very good uh, season. Uh, truly enjoyed it. Uh, I think it was out of the three that we're talking about easily the strongest. Uh, I did uh, enjoy that, uh, that it had, um, uh, some practical effects we talked about in the last pod, um, where the the bad guy uh, Vecna uh, is actually a actor that's in a suit, you know, and he's all slathered with with, with goop and stuff to to kind of convey this this evil evil guy, um, and then uh, some CG augmentation on top. I thought that was very effective for that character. Um, there's lots of twists and turns. Um, there are several. Uh, 
uh, kind of, I don't want to say set pieces, but um, the, the characters split up and, and, and you have uh, three, sometimes four different groups um, and even a couple of time periods that are going on simultaneously and they keep rotating through all of them and they keep a very brisk pace uh, throughout the whole season, uh, so far anyway. Uh, of course, we have the second half in July. Um, really, really top tier stuff. I think uh, um, I wanted to say uh, this was a, a couple of shows ago. You had mentioned Night Sky. You kind of talked us through Night Sky and 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 how uh, it was sort of a throwback in 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 a type of storytelling. Um, boy, Stranger Things uh, is such an interesting thing because I feel like it it does that in in a very um, in a very uh, a very big way. It's it's a very strong. Uh, uh, it's a throwback, but it's the throwback to the loudness of the time period, like that late seventies, early eighties of how things were filmed. Um, lots of very big. Uh, the sound effects and editing are, are big, and the special effects are big, and the hair is big, and the outfits are big, and everything is big. You know, it's it's uh, and I you know it's totally appropriate for the times, uh, but it's. Uh, I will say you get to the end of these handful of episodes and with Netflix, binging is easy, especially when the stuff is as exciting as this is. Um, and uh, really exhausted, <laughs> really exhausted. Very, very, uh, very, um, just a lot. You know, it's like, you know, it's like a, um, you know, big, big old pound of cheesecake. You know, you get to the other <laughs> side and it's just like overly rich in some ways. Uh, and, uh, uh, but I did love it. All the actors acquit themselves very well. Um, some truly touching moments, uh, some characters that I didn't like at all from the first season are my favorite now. They've, they've added texture and dimension to characters that I really enjoy. Um, so out of the three, easily the highest recommendation. I think it pulls off what it's trying to do. I, I don't necessarily think Stranger Things is the, uh, you know, most deep, the deepest or most thoughtful of, of all the shows I've ever watched as much as what they're trying to go for. They nail handily. And I, I, uh, I appreciated that, uh, quite a bit. So if I'm summarizing of these three, marry Stranger Things, fuck the Northmen, kill Ozark. Yes, that's it. That's exactly <laughs> it. Yes, you did it. You did it. You landed it. I, I, and once you see Alexander Skarsgård walking out of the gym, <laughs> you, you, you have nailed it with the with the with the Northman. I promise. He is, uh, he is a uh, tall drink of water. That guy. He's Fantastic. he's definitely done all the work. Yeah, you know, it's uh, funny what you said about Ozark. You know, I'm coming back to that. And I'll definitely watch Stranger Things next. It fits into my wheelhouse and uh, is exactly the kind of super agro snack that I'm looking for. I, you know, I think about Vince Gilligan's shows, you know, Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul, which you mentioned briefly, it would, and Better Call Saul just had a mid-season break. His shows are filled to the brim with despicable people. If you just look at them on paper, they are terrible human beings doing terrible things all of the time. And I've never once found any characters, far as I can recall, and I probably could fact check myself about this in those two shows that didn't have something I could relate to. And I also think about a show like The Shield, uh, mm. which is, you know, classic, uh, you know, bad cops doing bad things uh, with gangsters or The Wire. Uh, you know, there's so many shows that are based on the antihero and just based on very bad people that you would not want to sit down and have a meal with. Mm -hmm. And, you know, coming back to more recently, like there is bad people are interesting. And I think what makes them interesting for entertainment is we generally are 
neutral or we like to think of ourselves as good people trying to find, you know, the best way in the world. And then we open our door and we see crime and craziness and all of this thing. And when you take a show, you know, use Better Call Saul because it sounds like Ozark is a trash fire that nobody should watch. And Mm. you look at this attorney who became, you know, an a mob lawyer and has done all of these terrible things. There's something fascinating to peeling back the curtain and asking, well, how did he get that way? And when you have a really deep, rich answer that isn't just, well, he's a shithead, guys. That's it. That's it's a one episode show. That's all we've got. Uh, You know, there's something captivating about it because I think we see ourselves in these characters doing things that we would never do or that we think that we would never do. And then the show, at least the way Gilligan has done it, and the whole premise of Breaking Bad was, you know, this high school chemistry teacher diagnosed with cancer, just trying to help out his family. And so the rabbit hole goes, you know, this descent into darkness, the title of the show, Breaking Bad. And I feel like he perfected that formula for Better Call Saul uh, with Jimmy McGill and coming up with this well, how did this guy get that way then? And having Mm. just as competent an answer. And it sounds like with Ozark, and I watched, I think, six episodes of the first season and then just wasn't feeling it. And so I think you've saved me a lot of time and heartache. Uh, And I don't think there was anything offensive, but even then I just couldn't really get with the characters and their immediate descent into this craziness just didn't make a whole lot of sense to begin with. Mm. And so... It sure sounds like somebody started reading some Vince Gilligan scripts at the end of Ozark. And it's like, oh, you mean the only thing that makes Anna Heroes interesting is when they are relatable to us. That you got it. You hit it perfectly. I I, I very much hear what you're saying. And I think every show where I don't have... Uh, relatable characters in it, that's always been the, the, the crux for me. It's It's these people are doing bad things, but there is a reason. And sometimes even that reason doesn't have to be relatable, but it's relatable to them and it's well told to them. You know, I mean, you've got uh, your, uh, with Breaking Bad, when you've got, you know, Walter White and he's, you know, I mean, the show kicks off with him having a sickness, right? Like a terminal illness. And, you know, knock on wood, right? Like that, that's not anything that I'll ever have to worry about. But, uh, but I think it's sold in such a way that, that you understand, you understand why this character is so broken, right? Like that he is going to make these decisions that him as a sniveling school teacher would never make, right? Like that drives him to such a, such a totally different place. And so even if it's not a a thing I can personally relate to, you know, and that the, the struggle for that character, like how did they get there? You know, I mean, I think that is a, that journey of why they are, you know, a, a, a terrible fucking person, right? Like, how did they get to that that place? Like, they didn't wake up on a Tuesday and decided, I'm the evil guy, right? Like, there's something else that happened. How did we get to that that place in, 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 in that character? Character development, right? Like, they, <laughs> they talk about developing characters, you know, when you're doing scripts and writing stories, and that's it, right? Like, how, how do we get there? And even if if that character ends up being irredeemable at some point eventually, if you've been with them for long enough and you've seen them on enough relatable moments and you've seen the struggle in them to be good and to be a better person, so that descent 
hits so much harder. Um, a couple other shows that I'm, I'm watching right now um, uh, that we certainly probably next week I'd like, like to talk about if we have any time after all the gaming. Um, Barry, um, I've always I've been a huge huge Barry fan uh, since it since it came out, um, and uh, the boys um, that just came out with season three, and both of them have villains in them that are uh absolute pieces of shit right like they're terrible terrible characters um and um and yet the characters within the tapestry of them uh there are some incredibly redeemable characters and incredibly relatable characters in several different ways and and in very specific stripes and un, un, unexpected ways um and so like that to me uh adds for good contrast so even if you have a character that is just you know mustache twirling evil that you have a world that is still populated by people that could be good right because that creates a threatening situation where where you're just worried that the good people are going to be in the in the sphere of all all encompassing evil and will get hurt you know potentially so i, I do feel like it is possible to um, to still have these 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 characters that are made of true evil, um, as much as I find that my favorite villains are always the ones that have the texture and have the dimension. Um, but certainly, like when I see a show like Ozark, and in many cases Succession, um, and and there are others. Those are just the two coming to mind right now. Where like kind of everybody is just lousy, and I I don't really re <laughs> relate to any of them, and I don't know why any of them are like this, and they, they don't ever seem to be getting better or worse. Um, I, I, then I start getting into a place where I'm just uh, I, I just I, I tune out because I, I don't feel like I can relate to what's happening at all. I feel like these people have I I'm never going to know the story of why any of these characters are like this, you know, because they don't seem interested in telling me. And that seems like the best place for for where it is, you know, I mean, and there's so many good storytelling devices for that, you know, flashbacks and, you know, uh, you know, characters from their past and, you know, putting them in new situations that, you know, change their, you know, tropes that we've seen in lots of other shows before you can get there, right? Like there's definitely ways to do it. Uh, so uh, anyway, um, yeah, so the, it, it was a heartbreaker for Ozark. You really hit it on the head there. It's just, you know, it's, uh, you know, there's a there's a way to deliver that. There's a way to understand that even when you have irredeemable characters, if at least you took me on the journey, I could definitely go with you. Yeah, I, I, I'm going to very briefly stick up for Succession, mostly because I know my wife listens to this podcast and uh, we've watched it. What I will say about Succession is that having now watched most of Ripper Street, I know why you hate it. Uh, watching <laughs> watching Matthew McFadden deliver the most beautiful steely-eyed monologues episode after episode and then transform into an overgrown jobless frat boy with uh, all kinds of terrible complexes uh, is painful. I, I can imagine that that is painful. I had the joy of watching Succession first, and so I only knew him as an overgrown frat boy. And then he started speaking proper English, and uh, you know now I just need to give him all of the awards. Uh, so if I had experienced that in reverse, I would probably feel similarly about Succession. It's not a great show. There's not a huge defense that I'm going to put forward on it. I do think that very much colors things and I'm going to be very interested to see how I feel about next season of Succession mm. having right. now watched Ripper Street uh, but I think it's candy in uh, much the same way something like Shameless is candy you know where you know these characters are 
reliable and goofy within their bits, uh, but it's not high art. And I think, you know, Succession against something like Shit's Creek, which way outkicks its coverage with generally unrelatable super rich people. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, there's a different, a clear distinction between those two. Uh, there's some clever writing in Succession. It's not one that I would say go out and see or change your opinion on, but I definitely think that the Mac- Matthew McFadden factor as a Ripper Street and Succession watcher cannot be understated. Uh, can, can I say the Matthew McFactor? Can I? Can ooh, we say that? Is that? It's now. That it's what? the episode title. So it's yes. the episode. It's the episode. Everyone, <laughs> print it. That's what we did. Yeah, and actually, you know, with that, we are kind of running long. There are a couple other things I wanted to touch on. I did want to hit on the pocket operator for Pixel, but I sort of want to do a little more research on it. Uh, you know, the only thing I want to say briefly, uh, I've on this podcast and elsewhere and in our conversations complained a little bit about the fact that I feel like Google dropped the ball in not building a high fidelity audio ecosystem around Android. And it's been a longstanding issue. Uh, I think I complained about it as recently as last week. And then yesterday, uh, Teenage Engineering, the creators of the tiny synth that we talked about several weeks ago, that's um, very expensive and very design-driven, have partnered with Google to drop a sequencer synth app with video for Pixel phones exclusively that is a lot closer to what an iOS app would look like for music production. You know, it's got uh, pretty snappy sequencing and uh, you can live sample audio and video into it and put together some uh, funky Beats, uh, Jeremy of Red Memes Recording has uh, the obligatory 18-minute uh, cool video on it. It's a very neat app. It's built in Unity, and this is why you know I probably want to talk about this more on a future episode. It gives me hope that they're finally moving in this direction, and I really, I deeply hope that it's not just a gimmick, that it's not just a one-off thing to have a Pixel-specific thing because that's not that's not really Google's jam to further isolate Pixel from the rest of the Android ecosystem. Mm-hmm. And so I'm hopeful that it's just an early sign that, hey, we can move in this direction and we can start building. And they've got a long road to go at an OS level uh, to build the pieces that will encourage music makers to build. But the beauty of Android and Android apps running on Chromebooks is that at its core, it's a specific Linux operating system that audio designers already know how to use, already build for. Um, Synthian OS, uh, which is a tiny synth that I have, runs on Linux on a Raspberry Pi. Bitwig, a full-on professional pro-level DAW that we're recording this podcast on right now, is compatible with Linux. And so... I hope Android gets there, and I hope that this free, I guess, uh, tiny synth uh, kind of novelty app that actually runs in a game dev engine is a sign of good things to come. That would be great. Yeah, I, I would. I would love to after you get through your research, hear about the 
um, how Unity is uh, overcoming some of the opt op obstacles at the uh, API level. That would be a, would be an interesting find to dig into. Yeah, I, I'm going to try. You know, I know a couple of iOS music app devs uh, that I've chatted with uh, over the years, and I may ping some of them to see today when they look at the Android landscape, you know, what are the blockers for adding the app? Because I think all app developers would love the additional audience that being on the Play Store would bring them and not being Apple specific. And so very curious to see where the development headaches are. You know, we don't have to build in Java anymore. If we can build in Unity and use some of these other tools and build native apps, there's something there. So I'll do some homework and maybe a future episode will kick on it. Cool. But that sounds great. Yeah, I guess uh, uh, so. Uh, for my part, I'll just sign off with. Uh, in, we have uh, several gaming shows coming up here. It is the week of Naughty Three. Um, I guess uh, Jeff Keeley's Summer Game Fest will kick off on Thursday, the 9th uh, at 2 p.m. Eastern, I believe it is. I'm not sure if we'll be able to watch that live uh, this week. Part of the reason we're recording early, both of us, is we've got uh, several different. Uh, responsibilities outside of the podcast and you know uh kiddo graduations and uh some some stuff uh and uh so i probably won't be able to see that uh thursday on sunday you and i'll be doing a viewing of the uh, xbox and bethesda showcase um that's uh, on the 12th uh, i believe that uh starts somewhere in the middle of the day i wanted to say noon or one o'clock somewhere around there um so We'll be checking that out. And then Monday, uh, Capcom actually has a showcase that they're doing. Um, so I think I also heard that it was on the 14th, which is Tuesday. Microsoft is going to do, um, I don't know if they've done this in prior years. They're going to do the showcase again, but basically do like extended previews of some of the games. So instead of that, it just yeah. being the 90 minutes, I think they're going to do like a two hour plus, you know, version of that. Um, so... Uh, that'll be my homework here for the next week. I'll be watching all of those, uh, you know, uh, kind of poking around at all the various websites and uh, uh, for each of the respective publishers and, 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 and developers and trying to get as much information collected. So uh, I imagine next week's pod is going to be very gaming focused. Uh, so uh, excited to do that. Um, and uh, that's uh, that's kind of uh, uh, where we're where we're going. Uh, in terms of uh, next week's show. I love it. It's going to be absolutely jam-packed. Our eyeballs are going to be bleeding from all of the games that are delayed. So many games, none of you can play. Exactly right. So catch us next week. We'll talk to you soon. See you, everybody.